Welcome to the Bali Effect. This is Preeti Tana. And this is Dee Dee Perry. Yet again, Preeti, here we are, back at it. Got it. Well, this one, this is a kind of an interesting week because we, we just did one a couple a couple days ago. No, we didn't. This is podcast land. Oh, and that's everything right. is in real time, right? <laughs> in real time weekly. How's it going, Dee? It's going. It's going. Uh, today went by very quickly, and um, at the same time, you know, had had a couple Bali moments, some things I need to think about deeply, uh, some of which I can discuss freely, some of which eh, I'll, I'll hold in for now. But Not so uh, much. Yeah, but still, it's all, listen, in some form or fashion, everything that I speak here is informed by what I'm going through in my life, so, you know. The beat goes on. How about for you, girl? How'd it go today? I mean, it was fine. I took a nap this afternoon. This hey! is exactly this is exactly opposite of our guest day. This is what I'm gonna I'm going to. I'm going to surmise that our guest probably had a totally different day than I did. But Dee, I have a question for you. I know you always start off with a question for me, but I'm I have a question for you. Okay. Do you feel that you have what it takes or what you need to make your dreams a reality? Like in dollars and cents or emotionally, uh, intellectually, spiritually? What, how do you mean? I think all of those things. So, you know, individually, I know we, we all often don't have those things at once. But do you feel like you have the support of whatever, the universe, your friends, maybe it's financially. But if you were to say to yourself today, I know I can do this. I know I can make my dreams happen. Do you do you believe that? You know, I actually do. I actually do. And at the same time, I feel uh, I'm becoming increasingly aware of the ways in which I myself am not fully taking advantage of the things that I have at my disposal. Uh, not disposal, that that makes it sound a little too easy, um, but the things that are really available if I really focus in and um, exert discipline and apply the effort and the time in the direction of the things that my heart dreams of. Um, I actually think that my tendency to to want to spin the wheels a little too much can often stand in my way um, in terms of my productivity. For example, I'll share this one. I have so many things that I want to write, and I have had ideas about writing for years. You hear me? Now, what is stopping me? Look, I've got pencils all over the place. I've got a computer. I've got, you know what I mean? I have I have erasers because I know it won't work the first time out. You know, I've got the, the delete key. So in terms of, look, nothing between me but air and opportunity. But at the same time, thinking, oh, gosh, where do I even begin? Or where do I find the time to really delve into this activity? That I can't put that on anybody else but myself. So do I think I have it? Yeah, yeah. Um, have I been as focused in executing on my dreams? Not yet. Okay. You have time. You have time. Do I? 
I hope so. Because, I mean, I have really, really powerful stories that I want to tell. And, like, all different types of stories. I've got plays in my brain. I've got novels in my brain. I've got nonfiction essays in my brain, poems. See, now I'm really feeling very, like, defeated. Ah, No. You know, my point for asking the question, though, is just it was more of an emotional. If I I wanted to know if you felt like you had any emotional barriers, right? Because there's there's nothing stopping anyone from doing anything truly there isn't um but you have to you know have certain i think foundational pillars i think you have to believe that you can move through those dreams and you can get to that other side and you have to not think of all the reasons why it can't happen absolutely absolutely and i think that for me um i have started to feel so accustomed to feeling just stuck where i am that I stopped envisioning uh, uh, and realizing, oh no, th- th- this is temporary. You, it actually is not a permanent state of being. But Preeti, I'm gonna flip it back to you. <laughs> do you have everything that you need to make your dreams come true? I do. Okay, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I mean, they change often. And I think, you know, what I used to dream about or dream of, of what I wanted to do when I was younger, um, it certainly has changed. And that may be because I put up my own barriers or think that I, you know, maybe I'm too old or maybe I can't um, do some of those things. But I definitely think I have what I need. I think the question is always how important is it to me? You know, and how, how my dream, I mean, I do we know this? I'm a daydreamer ever since I was a kid. You know, I don't even want to talk about I'm trying to get to the point where I introduce our guest because I I'm so excited to talk to her. But ever since I was a kid, I, I would have very big dreams, you know, and I think if you sometimes think about your life and think about where you've gone and how far you've come, you realize that maybe a lot of those dreams have already come true. You know, we're because we're constantly thinking about that next thing and now what and what's going to put me on the map. And I think um, at least when I look at my life, when I think about when I was a kid um, and what I was worried about and what I thought about um, and what I thought I wanted to do. I mean, the big dream, which has come up a lot on the podcast, is being a Bollywood actress. That did not happen. It's not too late, girl. You still look good. It's yeah. not. Um, it's not. But I think it became less of a less of a priority. But I remember, you know, just wanting to be forever in the state of glee, you know, and I felt like every time I watch these Bollywood movies, everyone was, oh, well, not all of them. But, you know, most of the time there was there was this happy ending and everyone was falling in love and everyone was so excited. I used to have moments like that as a child, by the way. Well, you know, I, I want to slightly revise the question because when you say that, um, do do you feel that any of your dreams require the participation of other people in order for them to come true? Because I know certain dreams that I have, and I'm working through this now, uh, they seem like they might not be materializing because they're the things that I can do with my own two hands, and then there's the things that involve other folks, and it's like, well... Hey, I can't control anybody but me. So they feel a little bit more um, distant. Mm. I think we all have dreams that that make up other people and other participants in the story. But I think if you get really into what the dream is about, 
you know, what is it that Mm. you're trying to achieve? There's usually an emotion or a feeling there. And I think that that can be achieved solo. And I think that's actually one of the the little secrets of life. Um, So, yeah, I mean, yeah, of course, (laughs) I have dreams that include other people. Sure. They do always, uh, you know, end up turning into that feeling of joy you know, and that feeling of being okay and of, of getting up every day and feeling good and feeling happy and spending time with people that I love. Um, so yeah, I don't know. That's that we could, that's a complicated one. Absolutely. Well, I do want to recognize and acknowledge that this is a very, uh, I hate to put it like this. So I'm not going to, where I was about to go with it. This conversation that you and I are having about, opportunity and do we think that we can make things happen this is a privilege Mm -hmm. this is a privilege and this is not uh something that everyone on the face of this planet gets to just opine on in the middle of the week Mm -hmm. and so simply being able to consider the fulfillment of my dreams i do recognize as a blessing I agree. I agree. And, and and thank God for that. Uh, would you like to continue this line of conversation? No, or I want to get. There's to so our many questions that we have because <laughs> yeah. I could go. I could go to another level on this. We could, we could I. I was talking about how I had, you know, lots of moments as a child of feeling such incredible joy, and one of them was a summer camp that I went to. Um, and I went to the summer camp. It was called Hindu Heritage Summer Camp. I thought you were going to say band camp. It's like pre No. <laughs> camp. Um, I went to Hindu Heritage Summer Camp, and it was in the Poconos, and it was blissful. And a lot of that had to do with um, just being in an environment where I was around people that looked like me and that, you know, there was a connection between all of us, and all of our parents were, were first generation, so they had grown up in India. Um, and so this was, you know, my time to be around people that I connected with. And so our guest today, among many other things, which I'll tell you in a second, is one of my dearest camp friends, Dr. Amita Vyas. Welcome, Amita. How are you? Thank you. It's so great to be here with both of you. And Preeti, this is this is incredibly special to to share this moment with you. So thank you. I mean, who who would have thought, right? When we were when we were younger, uh, it's who would have thought so many things. Who who would have thought? I mean, I think Amita was always uh, a leader. You are, but you know, I remember you as a kid. I mean, teenagers, right? Ten, eleven, twelve, and you were extraordinary, extraordinary in terms of someone who I just looked up to and admired. And I will go through Amita today. Dr. Amita Vyas is a professor at the George Washington University Milken Institute School of Public Health and Director of Center of Excellence in Maternal and Child Health. You earned your doctorate in Population and Family Health Sciences from the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. Today, you're teaching and researching, focusing on women's and adolescent health. Um, You've also served as a principal investigator for countless research grants. Um, in 2007, you founded the Global India Fund, a nonprofit organization, and committed. I'm like, <laughs> there's, there's so much more. I love it. Committed to uh, giving people around the world an opportunity to make a difference through service and philanthropy. And then in 2015, you joined the Girl Rising campaign as a producer of the critically acclaimed 2013 documentary. 
Um, you also serve um, as on its board chair. So welcome, Amita. I- <laughs> you know, that's a little bit embarrassing when you have to actually sit and listen to someone read that out loud. I know. But when it's your one of your oldest friends from childhood. <laughs> I, you know, today when we were um, preparing and I was reading this, um, I, I really, first two things, I'm not surprised, but I'm so proud of you. Oh, thank you. That is really one of the best compliments one can receive when it is from somebody that you care deeply about, someone from your childhood who knew you, you know, <laughs> at the beginning when we were just teenagers, like running around at summer camps. Running around, the most important thing. What was the most important thing we would think about back then? Do you remember? What was oh so God. important to us? It was like music and boys and what were we going to wear for like the evening, you know, of festivities <laughs> at camp. I mean, Rick, we were just in so many ways just normal teenagers. But I think, Preeti, what you said, you know, we, we were with um, – people who looked like us and who were experiencing the same thing we were. I mean, we are a unique generation and that we were children of immigrants, right? Like our children and their children and the next generation, like they all have different experiences. We were sort of that transition generation. And I think to me, that's what was so special was to be with people from all over the world, all over the country who, um, looked as we did and spoke as we did and experienced as we did. And had the same same sort of issues, if you will, of growing up in an, you know, an Indian family in America, where at least from where I was from, predominantly, I was the only Indian person in yep. school. Yep. But tell us where you're from and, you know, talk a little bit about as a child, what sort of values your parents instilled in you? Because I think it's so interesting, especially being children of immigrants, to hear about um, you know, household discipline and values and what your parents really wanted you to be when you grew up. Yeah. I mean, I think Preeti, you and I probably had the same experience, <laughs> right? I mean, that's why we have, we still have this connection like decades and decades later, but so I grew up in <laughs> Connecticut, right? And shout out to Connecticut. Connecticut. Yeah. Shout out to Connecticut. Believe it or not, there are some Indian people there. There are lots actually. <laughs> Um, But I was one of like the only Indian kids in my school growing up and in my high school. And, you know, it was sort of Monday through Friday, you were with all your non-Indian friends, right? You were really mainstreamed. I mean, I think our parents did a really great job of wanting us to assimilate, you know, into the U.S. and to, you know, partake in sports and activities and leadership. But academics was number one. I mean, I think if you ask any parent of that generation, why did you come to the United States? It was for the betterment of their family and for education and for their children's education, right? I mean, they were so committed to that. And then on the weekends, it was like you just did this 180 and you were (laughs) immersed in Indian culture, right? Like you would go to a temple or, you know, we didn't really have a ton of temples when we were younger, not the way that it is now, Mm -hmm. but, you know, gatherings with other Indian families or celebrating Indian holidays. And so I really did feel like Monday through Friday, my life was really different from Saturday and Sunday. Um, And I don't think I realized how, um, how hard it probably was for our parents, you know, trying to allow their children to assimilate into this country while also preserving 
that culture. And for many of our parents, you know, they didn't have family here. They, right. they, they themselves came here, right, for higher education. And so they were kind of alone and their friends became their family, like the other Indian pe- families that they would meet. And they really had to work so hard um, to preserve the culture and religion. And, you know, like now everyone knows Bollywood, right? Like, right. Bollywood is cool. Everyone knows Priyanka, you know, Chopra Jonas. Right. Yeah, back then, it was not cool. <laughs> it was not cool at all. You know, I was... Who Indians were, right? We were like, you know, like photographs in National Geographic. <laughs> Such a different world. Yeah, it's true. You know, I think about that. Our parents, can you imagine? I mean, they they didn't know the language. Um, they, to your point, they knew they had to leave their environments. And, and our parents, you know, my parents didn't grow up... Um, you know, they had a tough upbringing, as we heard all the stories about how they had to walk to school miles and miles and miles without shoes. Uphill, with, uphill, uphill, for right. sure. My, my parents told those stories, too. <laughs> In the but, deep south. I think I really do think it's a good sign of parenting if you've heard that story. Right. But I think one of the most incredible gifts they gave us was that camp, because the acknowledgement that they probably couldn't give us the experience that we needed to maintain that culture because they themselves were working so hard to, you know, make a living and provide for us and integrate into a country that they really fully didn't understand. So I think that was one of the greatest gifts. And I remember um, several times when my father didn't have a job, but making sure that we were still going to summer camp. (laughs) Sometimes I I would think to them, right? right? For like, realizing that, but then also to allow us the independence and freedom to go to this camp, right? We would be there for at least two weeks, sometimes longer, right? And to let your kids go off like that and just kind of be independent and give them those wings. I I don't think I appreciated how hard in some ways that must have been for them, right? To trust. Yeah, but don't you think they probably didn't really understand what was happening there? I mean, we're saying that. Thank God. Experience. But I'm sure they're like, they're going to camp and they're going to learn Sanskrit and they're going to learn how to be good Hindu kids. And that's what we're doing. And it doesn't, you know, that's what we're doing every summer. And then, you know, the flash to summer when we're running around like crazy people, you know. As much as uh, America is credited for being like such a melting pot, um, I think there is such a, a part of the richness of the the culture that the broader country takes credit for is the preservation of the homelands of the many, many different places where people are coming from. And that's what makes a place like New York so spectacular because you take a borough like Queens with, what's the number? I don't know, pretty like 300 or so different uh, countries that are represented. And you see that there are, there are places of worship, there are cultural mm-hmm. centers, yeah. there are nonprofits that are all um, really seeking to do what it sounds like this camp that you were doing was uh, the same exact thing, like preserving the ancestral memory, preserving the language, preserving the traditions, so that it doesn't just all, you know, blend into this other thing that is cool. You know, American culture can take pieces from everything, but there is a lot to be said about holding on to the core too. 
What's interesting, though, and Amita, you're right. When I, Amita and I were talking about the podcast, I said, we'll talk about camp. She said, that's going to take eight podcasts. We can't talk about camp. So we are going to move on. But okay. I think the interesting thing about it is um, it, it was not run by hin- in Hindus or Indian people, actually. Who um, ran it? And so, Amita, who ran Hindu Heritage Summer yeah, Camp? Really- How did you describe the group of people? Yeah. <laughs> were they like hippies? Yeah, pretty much. So they were... Um, you know, white Americans, you know, grew up here. It was actually started to pretty you're not gonna believe this, but I actually did some research into this years later, years and years later, because I was just so curious. And um it was she was a um this woman was a Jewish woman mm-hmm. and she had a dream, a some sort of spiritual dream. She was married, she had a spiritual dream, and she decided to go to India. And sort of learn about Hinduism. So she was actually really schooled, right? Like, I mean, they were really schooled, right, Preeti? Like, oh they, yes, they. they, they I mean, I learned philosophy and science, yeah. and and I everything. think that's what was so powerful about it was that like they really knew their stuff. But so, and then she like bought this land in the Pocono Mountains. And then kind of recruited, right? This was like in the 50s and 60s. Like it was the, see, like you said, the hippie, the hippie generation of people finding themselves. And it became this sort of commune. Um, and then they stumbled upon Indian families or Indian families stumbled upon <laughs> them and were like, wow, you guys like really know what you're doing. So maybe we'll send our kids here. Wow. <laughs> it, it was, it was extraordinary. It truly was. My jaw dropped open when you said she had a dream because I I can relate to that. We don't even have the time. I am not going to hog this episode. All I can say is I traveled to India really on the inspiration of another person who had a dream about going to India. And I had a dream about going to India as well, not too long afterwards. And it changed my life. And when Preeti told me that, you know, you had been to Calcutta and it had really opened up this entire world for you, I, you know, my, my hair stood up because that is where I ended up going completely unbeknownst to me. I mean, waking up in the middle of the night and being sent in this direction. So can you actually tell us about how did you get to Calcutta and when and why and what happened when you got there? Well, first, wow, I think I really want to hear your story. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that yeah. sounds powerful and yeah. spiritual. So, um, you know, I, I, I've really become a big believer in the power of storytelling, and that is really my own story. I read a book. Um, it was called The City of Joy by Dominique LaPierre, and it was a story of a missionary um, from the U.S. who had gone and worked um, in the Missionaries of Charity with Mother Teresa, and I was so moved by his story, and I said, well, that's what I want to do. And so um, I don't know, Preeti, actually, if you even know this part, but I, you know, so we went to camp with lots of people. I recruited a couple of my camp friends, actually. How old are you at this point? We were, we were in college. So I was 19. 
And um, I recruited four other friends of mine, two of them from Kentucky and two of them from Virginia. We had all gone to camp together. And I said, I read this book and I think it's like really fabulous. And we just, we need to go to India and we need to work with Mother Teresa. And of course, our parents were like, well, that just sounds a bit, you know, crazy. Like you're 19 (laughs) and like, we don't know anybody in Calcutta and we're not just going to like send you there. Um, And four out of the five of us were women, were young women. Um, but you know, at that age, you think you're invincible and you're going to go out and change the world and all of those good things. And so we raised the money ourselves and we're like, well, now we're going. And so our parents <laughs> really had nothing they could do <laughs> except to drop us off at the airport. Well, were you and selling Girl Scout cookies? How did you rate? Cause that's oh an expensive God. flight. Just fundraisers and civic organizations. We wrote these little grants and we just, we raised enough money that we, we didn't need much back then. Right. Yeah. Back and then. It got, was and, you know, this is pre internet, pre the yes. web. Yeah. All I had was an address from the book I had read and we <laughs> showed up. You had, you had everything you needed. You had the ambition right, and remember, the drive. I, did you ever I say to your parents, did you ever say like, do you remember that time you did not want me to go to Calcutta and work with mother Teresa? <laughs> I know. Well, now they, they, you know, when you ask them, they would say, oh, my God, no, we were all up for it. Oh, right? yes, it was such a profound experience. But we literally knocked on the door of Mother Teresa's missionary and we said, we're here and we want to work for the summer. And we did. And I worked in the missionary for the dying and destitute. And was she there and like working she was. at the time? She was like, that's when she was like fully immersed in the missionaries and really, you know, the the CEO of this really multinational corporation is really what it was. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we spent a little bit of time with her and, you know, we would go to mass on Sundays and, um, you know, to me, like God is God and spirituality is spirituality, no matter what the specific faith or religion. And, um, so I really appreciated that. And, um, it transformed my way of thinking. You know, I saw how men and women were treated differently, Mm -hmm. right? It really got me out of my bubble. I saw how women, you know, I sat and I listened to their stories. Again, the power of storytelling. When you listen to women who were dying, whether it's of leprosy or tuberculosis, you know, or other diseases, I mean, they've been completely stigmatized and ostracized and shunned from their families. Uh, and when you hear their stories, which were really different from the stories that I would hear from the men who were at the center, I realized, oh, my God, like so much of healing and healthcare is grounded in these social inequities, right? Whether mm-hmm. it's social class or economic inequities, gender. Um, and that sort of opened up my eyes to what public health was. And now, right, everyone knows what public health is. But all those years ago, public health was kind of a new thing. Um, so I came back, you know, after having such a profound experience and I, um, I did a lot of research and I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to do public health. I want to solve problems that focus on sort of the root causes of why we see all of these disparities in health and healthcare. And so that's, that's sort of what got started me on my journey into public health. I think many, you know, many people will say, I, I want to do the same thing. I want to do the same thing. I want to solve these problems. I want to help. But what was it back then? I mean, to your point, yes, back then, 
I, I chuckle because I still feel like we're teenagers. But what was it back then that, you know, said you, public health was not mainstream? Um, was it difficult to find programs to get into? Did you know anyone who had been through a program? And, you know, if, if you're anything like me or our parents, you know, well, what steps? What steps, Amita? What were what are you going to do first, and then what's the next thing you're you're going to do to 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 go down that path? Yeah, it was hard, right? Because yeah. people didn't know what it was. I think at that time, if I remember, there were only 14 schools of public health in the country. Right now, there are hundreds of public health programs, and you know, trying to explain to people what is public health was difficult. People didn't understand that. My family was a little bit like, oh, I thought you were going to go to medical school because that we understand, right? <laughs> Well, I know what that is. Right. Um, and I said, you know what, just leap of faith. Like, let, let me just try this, right? I'm going to go to public health school. Um, I was very fortunate. I got into Johns Hopkins. It's the number one public health school, right, in the world. And um, my parents said, okay, well, that's okay. We can live with that step, right? <laughs> we, can, we can tell everyone that. That's okay. We can tell, that's right. We'll settle yeah. for number we one. We can brag about that. And... <laughs> And then let's see what happens, right? Like, so they were willing to allow me that first step and then let's see where this goes. Um, And Preeti, I just, you know, I really found my passion. And, you know, people often ask me that question, like what drives me into this work? Because so much of it is also service to humanity, service to um, vulnerable populations. And, you know, I don't know, I, I bet you guys probably feel in many ways the same way that I do, which is how fortunate that I am. Right. I mean, Preeti, you know, both of you have traveled to India. Um, why is it that I had this life that I had? Right. Why is it that I had two parents who never treated my sister and I any differently because we were girls? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, why is it that I get to have all of these educational opportunities and learning opportunities? And, you know, I think that that has like really stuck with me over the years that I could be that girl that I see in the streets of India, but I'm not. And so, and I have listened to so many of their stories. And when you listen to people's stories, it fundamentally changes you and um, makes you feel like you've got this real responsibility to do something to really help them and to help their communities. And so I've always really kept that with me. And, and throughout my career, I will, I always go into the field, right? I always spend time, whether it's sitting on the floor, talking to women in a village outside Cape town, South Africa, who all have, you know, HIV and Mm -hmm. hearing their stories or whether it's in India or whether it's in any country. And I think that, you know, listening to people's stories is what fundamentally drives me. What is, um, what's the theme? What do you hear most from these women that tell you stories? Is there something that you hear? Are they uh, excited or anxious or um, resigned to their future? Or do they ask questions such as, what can you do to help us? Or do they not know there's another world available? What What are some of the themes that you hear from them? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think what's always really struck me about whether it's adolescent girls or women and some of the most, you know, unfortunate um, situations. I mean, I have sat with women in the brothels of India, Mm -hmm. you know, who are sex Mm -hmm. workers and listened to their stories. And I think what um, is so inspiring is that so many of them can tell their story and they can, you know, a one minute later, they can laugh 
and they can smile and they can hug you and they have such incredible strength and resilience. Mm -hmm. And I think everywhere that I have gone around the world, that is one thing that has been so common, right? These, these stories, the experiences they have has not left most women, um, sort of depressed and distraught. In fact, they, they continue to live their life with such strength and courage. Um, and I think that is like the most beautiful thing ever, right? They, they really ask for help. They're just, they're happy that somebody's listening to their story. And if in some way their story can help other women in their community, they want to tell that story. And I think it just further reinforces, you know, when people talk about like girls and women's empowerment, yeah, that's like a little piece of the puzzle. But the real big piece here of the puzzle is we've got to change the way everybody around her thinks about her and values her, right? Women are not putting barriers up in front of them, right? They're it's not. everybody else that's putting up those barriers. And, and I see it, right? They're not putting up those barriers. They have big dreams. They want to do great things. They have strength. They have courage. Um, you know, sometimes there is a sense of feeling resigned to like, this is my world, but mm -hmm. they dreams for their children. Right. Um, and so the women are not putting up those barriers. Like women really are the pillars and the strength of those communities. And so how do we change the way everybody around her, um, values her and how do we ensure that they support her and take down all those barriers? How do we? <sighs> How do we? I know. I, you know, I mean, I've thought a lot about this over the years. Um, I have worked on the ground with mm -hmm. like NGOs and programs and interventions. And the good news is there are really good programs out there that can um, focus on, you know, whether it's getting girls into school or women's economic empowerment or health. But, you know, the impact is always sort of um, short term and it's mm -hmm. not sustainable, mm -hmm. um, which is why, you know, Preeti, you talked about my work with Girl Rising. That sort of was my entree into why I felt like Girl Rising was so powerful. Because, again, I think that storytelling and media can change the way people think. I right? agree. Yeah. Literally change your brain chemistry. Right. I mean, what you guys are doing here with the conversations you have, people listening, it's changing the way people think. So I do think that media and storytelling can play a huge role in that. I I think storytelling is the currency of our lives. You know, I think that is truly what makes up every fa fabric of being that we have, because in those stories, you can communicate change to your point. Um, how did you get into Girl Rising and what was your, you know, entryway into into that organization? You know, before you answer that, Preeti, I want to say um, before I lose the point, the story is also all that really is left once we're gone. Right. Mm. Your legacy. That's your legacy. What was your story? What were you about? Okay. Back to you, Amita. <laughs> no, I love what you just said. I love what you just said. And absolutely, I, I, I agree. And I believe in that um, as well. Uh, so Girl Rising, you know, I watched the original documentary. Okay. And I was so moved by it. In fact, my oldest daughter was 10 years old at the time, and I took her with me. And we got into the car afterwards. And I said, so, Syra, what did you think? And she said, wow, you know, it was just so sad what was happening to those girls in ancient times. Mm. I, like, I almost had to pull the car over. Right? <laughs> wow. Like, you what? The what? The ancient what? 
And she's like, yeah, I just, you know, what was happening to those girls, like all those years ago. And it just blew her mind that that was, you know, today, that was present day. That was 2010, 2011, 2012. It's today, 2020. Um, and I thought, wow, you know, this opened up such an incredible conversation for my 10 year old and I, I want everybody I know to have the same experience. And so, um, I, at the time, a few years before that I had, um, started a nonprofit organization, the Global India Fund. Mm -hmm. And every few years we would do fundraisers and we would support different programs and initiatives in India. And I said, okay, we're going to focus on Girl Rising and we're going to do a, a screening of this film. And it's going to be fancy and fun. And we're going to have kids there. We're going to have like parents can, it's something parents can bring their children to, right? So it was like black tie, but bring your kids, right? And nice. we're going to watch this film. And it was incredible. I mean, we had to switch venues. We ended up at the National um, Museum for Women in the Arts in D.C. We had over 450 people, well, including girl, kids. I want to say Girl Rising, for those who have not gotten to see it, you still, what platforms is it on? Because it's star-studded. Uh, it's star-studded, yes. Yes, the folk, well, the, the the girls who are featured, but it's narrated by. Please tell tell who this the name drop drop all yes, the names. I will, I will. So it's um this it's the story of nine girls in nine different countries around the world, and each story is narrated by a Hollywood um, actress. So Meryl Streep's, um, Selena Gomez, Selma Hayek, Anne Hathaway, that's, she's my favorite um, <laughs> in the film, uh, Priyanka Chopra, before Priyanka was like global Priyanka, uh, Frida Pinto. Um, it's really, really incredible. And it's online. You go to the website, and uh, the girlrising.org website. But um yeah, so I you know Carrie Washington too. Carrie Washington, yeah, she yeah. she's a narrator for our Nepal story for Suma story. She's so incredible. Um, so we did this event, 450 people. It was a fundraiser. There it was pin drop silence in this museum as people watched this film uh, with their children. And on a whim, we had invited Holly Gordon, who was the founder of Girl Rising to come and so and holly happened to be in dc from new york wow. and she came and we had this instant connection and a couple of weeks later we had a conversation and we said imagine if we could produce the same film in india mm -hmm. right and we could unlock and unleash the same kind of movement for mm -hmm. girls and women in india how cool would that be and I think it was like, you know, four weeks later, she and I got on an airplane and we went to India and we met with Frida and we met with Priyanka because they were part of the original film. And we said, let's co-produce this together, the India version of Girl Rising. And we we did. A year later, we, um, the Girl Rising India film debuted on television, on Star TV, which is one of the largest networks. Mm -hmm. Um, in the country, and it was the start of a, a national campaign, a national Girl Rising campaign. So that was that was my story. Did you have any prior background in film, in uh, visual medium of any kind, outside of the no. academy? 
No. In fact, when Holly asked me to do this, I was like, Holly, you know, I'm a professor, right? Like, <laughs> right? like I was like, I don't know what like I'm doing. She's like, no, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. We're going to do this. We're going to do this together. Um, and, you know, it was one of those things that I thought, yeah, well, why not? Right. Like you were talking earlier about your dreams and why, you know, I didn't even know that was a dream, but it was right. Like, why not just jump in and try things, right? That's, that's what's exciting about life, right. And the opportunities that we have in front of us, how can we pass it up? You know, we can figure it out. We're smart women, uh, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> so, yes. absolutely. We don't absolutely. Do it, who's going to do it? Exactly. So, um, <laughs> don't leave it to a man. I'm just kidding. Ooh, <laughs> can I say it out loud? Sorry. Sorry. You know, go ahead, Dee. And then I'll I'll let you do the point that your that your daughter brought up about not realizing, you know, oh, these things were happening so long ago. I actually I can relate to some of her naivete because I remember when I landed in Calcutta on this dream sequence. I went to a school where I ended up um, volunteering and really met with girls who some of them lived at the school. And the reason that they lived there, it was a K through 12, but about a hundred of them lived there because they had to be rescued from either abusive situations at home. But I was appalled to learn that a lot of them had been the victims of child trafficking. And I didn't realize that that was a current, very present um, circumstance that a lot of young girls were being subjected to. I had really, I I think I was a lot like your, your daughter, like, Oh, like a long time ago, but it was like, no, this was 2013. And these are just kids. They were just beautiful little children. I mean, like six and seven years old. And that, it, it just, it broke a part of my heart. And at the same time, to your point about, but that's not necessarily how these folks see themselves as victims. They see themselves as people with dreams and ambitions. And to see them playing, you would not know that. And even to talk to them and interact with them, that wasn't the story that they were telling me about who they were. That was what I got from the teachers and the principal and that sort of thing. But, you know, uh, humanity really is boundless. Yeah. No matter yeah. what. Didn't that change you? Didn't oh, my it- gosh. Yeah, I said, I, I have no excuses. I, I really have no excuses because if hope and optimism and the courage to dream about, you know, a, a beautiful future can exist for such young, young people and older girls, there were, there were teenagers as well and women who have had to endure so much, what in God's name is stopping you, Dee Dee Perry? You know, know, and I I sometimes don't even think it's about stopping. I think it truly is the way you approach life and how you think about it. You know, your perspective is you, you can create that perspective. You know, you, you think, you know, Amita, you said it earlier, the strength and resilience and of the majority of the people you spoke to that came from dire circumstances across the world. You know, that's a, that's a very strong testament. And I, and I want to ask both of you this, you know, because I know a premise of Girl Rising and a lot of other um, organizations that we all work with is education and, and education for girls. And, 
everyday girls face barriers to education caused by some of the things that you guys talked about, poverty, you know, cultural norms, um, poor infrastructure, violence, you know, all of these things. Where does one start? Where does an organization start in terms of, okay, you know, we have a goal we need to look after these women and these girls. We need to get them educated. So which one of those areas is most prominent to organizations to say, we can tackle this first? Yeah. Well, that's for the expert, not me. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just curious. Yeah, no, yeah. I think it, that's a really, you know, that's a really good question. And um, I think where I've landed on that is that I think there are already lots of great organizations working on the ground, you know, whether mm -hmm. they're going house to house and doing sort of mobilization campaigns to get girls into school or whether or not there are NGOs who have built schools, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they're bringing the girls there. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of really good stuff. I think, I think one of the issues is that um, we need organizations on the ground to work together, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, I'll give you the example of India. So about, you know, five, six years ago, less than 40% of girls were making it past secondary school, right? So that's like high school. Now that number has gone up to more than 70%. And the differential between boys and girls is really small. You know, it used to be much larger, the difference between adolescent boys and adolescent girls finishing secondary school, right? That's almost, they're, oh, it's almost equal in many places around the country. And yet only, you know, about 20, only about 25 to 30 percent of women in India are in the labor force, in the paid, mm. like formal sector. Right. So more girls are being educated. More girls are going to higher education. So now what's happening? Like we're still seeing the gender disparities. We're still seeing that women are not participating in the labor force. Right. So when we think about this issue, exactly what you've brought up, Preeti, right, like girls education. We've got to sort of take sort of the long view, right? Mm -hmm. That's one piece of what we need to do is make sure girls get into school. We need to make sure they've got quality education. But there are going to be barriers constantly, right, as they become young women, as they yeah. become women and married, as they, you know, want to have a job or a career. And there are barriers across the entire lifespan, across the entire life course. And I think the problem is, is that we've, not the problem, but we've invested so much in just girls' education, we kind of forgot about everything else, right, mm -hmm. in the, that long-term view. And what I'd really love to see is, like, how do we actually bring organizations together, you know, if you, right, who can sort of serve girls and women from the time they're, like, 15 to, like, 45, right? And what are all of the services that they need, right, to bring down their barriers so that they can succeed, can succeed and um, they can, feel, you know, fulfill their dreams, um, you know, I, I think that that's the issue is that we're sort of everything is so siloed right now. And I think that it's a tough thing to ask organizations to sort of think outside the box and to have that long term view. Well, we can create our own. We sure can. We absolutely can. <laughs> I mean, that's just an idea. <laughs> well, I wonder, Amita, do you find that these disparities are specific to countries like India, or do you find some of these same problems fundamentally even existing and, and curtailing opportunity right here in the United States? It's everywhere. It's mm -hmm. that's such a good question, right? It's everywhere. It's right here, right? I mean, we all, we're all here. We've all faced 
the yes. misogyny, the patriarchy. I mean, I'm in a progressive, you know, people think academia is very progressive, right? I'm in a large university. I can tell you that the, the, the leadership of the university is primarily all men, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, where are the women? Where are the role models? Where's the mentoring? Where, you know, where is all of that? We face it here, right? I mean, the patriarchy is alive and well, here in the U.S. and everywhere around the world. And so that goes back to my, like, until we can change the way people value girls and understand women and understand the value of having women at the table. I mean, to me, we are not going to change things until women are at the table across all sectors. Like, women need to be in leadership positions in academia and in health and in education. You know, they need to be leading the NGOs. They need to be leading political parties. Yeah, I mean, we need women at the table. And when those voices are there, that's when we're going to start seeing change, both at the policy level as well as at the grassroots level. I agree. And, you know, it's it's not even being at the table. We need to be able to support them when they're at the table. I've found, you know, from personal experience, you can get to that table. You can have a voice. But if you don't have an advocate and if you don't have, uh, you know, resources to help you move through what it actually means to be sitting at that table mm-hmm. and, ha- you know, your voice being heard, um, that's when you start to see a little bit of fall off, you know, th- because I think we hit a wall. We hit a wall where we we either say, you know, I can't fight for this anymore or it's too difficult. And I think the support around um, women that you know do get there, I think, is, is instrumental in, in keeping them there and keeping them, you know, excited to be there and to pave the path for those behind them. And to not only be there symbolically, but to truly exert yeah. their voices and yes. their power to not be just another white man, so to speak, but who pees sitting down. That doesn't help the cause. Yeah. And not and not having a voice is a universal thing. You know, it's 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 devoid of any sort of education or privilege. Um, even if you have those things, the the feeling of not being able to use your voice is quite prominent. You know, and we and I think that we also have to build the right kind of voice for boys. Yes. Right. So, you know, the work that I've done in India, I think the thing that's like been so interesting is, you know, we um, we put we had a girl rising program that we put into schools, thousands and thousands of schools across India. Uh, And when my team went there and we would sit and we would talk to the adolescent boys and girls in the schools, the thing that was so interesting to me was um, the reaction that the boys had. Right. Mm. You know, the cultural norms, the social norms, the gender norms, it's just a part of life. You know, they never thought, well, why is it that after lunch, the teachers ask the girls to clean up? They don't ask me to clean up. I don't ever have to sweep the floors after lunch at school. Why is it after school, my sister has to do household chores around the house and cooking while I get to go outside and play sports? Or I'm getting extra like academic tutoring, which is like a very much a norm for boys in India, mm-hmm. right? And it, you know, when they watched Girl Rising, that was the first time that boys actually reflected on, wow, I guess, yeah, my sister does get treated differently. Girls in my community do get treated differently. Girls in my school are treated differently than I am. And they became incredible advocates for their sisters and their mothers and their classmates. Mm-hmm. And that, right, we need to... But they need to build that voice, right? right? So until then, 
you know, they would not stand up for their sisters. They didn't have that voice to do that. So we need to build their voice as well so that they can become advocates for women. Like I, yeah. I, I just, I think that that's really something that's been missing. And I, you know, I think that's, that's where we're going to see long-term change. Wow. Isn't that great? She doesn't she leave you speechless? Always. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. For, for some folks who might be listening and, and hearing all of this and feeling, I want to do something. Uh, I am, you know, I, I live in a, a small town or a big city, but I don't have a f- sense of how to directly make a change. I probably won't be getting to Calcutta anytime soon. What can I do? I don't want to be a part of this destructive patriarchy and I don't want to to be apathetic. What might you suggest for folks who really want to do something but don't know where to start? So I'm going to take it full circle back to my experience in Calcutta um, and to something that Mother Teresa actually said when we, like my little group had a a private meeting with her before we left. Um, So we, you know, we had finished our work there that summer. And this is something that I've always sort of kept with me, these words. Um, She looked at us and she said, right, we were young. Again, we want, we had flown across the world (laughs) wanting to like do something great and impactful and we felt this sense of service and she said you know I really admire that but always remember you're really not going to make great change in the world unless you can serve the people who are closest to you and around you right you don't need to fly across the world and start an NGO to make change and so that is really my advice to people start in your own family have mm-hmm. conversations, have difficult conversations. Um, I mean, isn't that what's missing today right here? Like civil discourse, mm-hmm. right? We need to have more conversation, more discourse. We need to open up people's eyes. You know, we have these incredible platforms on social media. Use it to use your voice, mm-hmm. right? So do it in your family, do it in your community. Use those communication platforms to raise your voice. And, you know, do you could pick almost anything to do in your community and it will make it better. That is so tremendous. And you saying that, man, we have to just continue conversation after this. Preeti, you're going to have to give me her number because it reminds me of a conversation that I had in Calcutta with a, a, a gentleman. He was from England because there were only a handful of restaurants that you know, we could eat in because they cooked the food with the bottled water. And it was such tight quarters. And I was just sitting next to him and he was so kind. And we somehow, he he had come. Like you meet all these travelers who were there with a feeling of of purpose and really Mm -hmm. wanting to sincerely serve. It's not a place that you just stumble upon, you know, on your way to Paris or something. But he was saying, uh, we, we were talking about, you know, the world and people being more selfish or whatever. And I think I said, you know, I feel technology is really pulling people apart and making it much more difficult uh, for us to have real connection. And he was quiet for a moment. He paused and I'll, I'll never remember his name. I remember what he looked like. And I remember when he said, he said, you know, once upon a time, 
you know, all of the continents were connected. You know, there was Pangea. And then they started to pull apart. But I actually see it very differently. I actually think that technology is recreating a virtual Pangea for the world. Mm-hmm. And it is making it possible for people in, you know, one entire continent to be in immediate conversation with people in another continent. And we're all pulling back towards each other. And I, you know, I was like, well, damn, he's right. I, that was a Bali moment for me. Uh, I never thought of it that way. And yeah. so, you know, just relating to what you were saying, we have the capacity, the technology makes it so much easier for individuals' influence to be far, far greater and to go much more farther and wider than it would have been possible um, just five, ten years ago. Yeah. So let's take advantage of it, folks. Preeti, would you like to play the game tonight? Oh, yes. <laughs> this is, this well, I was a million awesome. miles away. I was already starting our our NGO that's going to connect all the dots. So I was thinking about that, but um, do, it. do this rapid fire questioning at the end of our podcast. So I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions and you just give me the first answer that comes to mind. Okay. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> this is the best. This is the fun part. Ready? Okay. Yeah. Go for it. Okay. I define wellness as happiness. Girls around the world deserve an education. One place I wish every American could see for themselves is the RV, which is the largest slum in Bombay. Oh, man. Yes. Ten years from now, I hope the world will be happier and safer. The one lesson I want my daughters to instill in others. Confidence. The one camp song I could sing forever. Country roads. Oh, country roads. <laughs> country roads. That is the most popular one. Yeah, I knew you were going to go there. I knew it. I was kind of hoping for maybe a budget or something, but I'll go with oh, country roads. Yeah, the other one would have been cosmic karmic coincidence. Remember uh-huh. that one? Yeah, that was good. Would, would you care would you to care? sing a piece right now, the two of you? I'm fairly certain you would not want to hear that. <laughs> Actually, it's kind of our thing. Okay, <laughs> I might have, I thought we should sing, but I think not. <laughs> a good you idea. know, all good Bollywood actors can sing, Preeti. I mean, it's your big chance. It's your chance. Um, Amita, you want you want to sing a little? How about one line with me? Okay, which one? No, we can do the country roads. Ready? Okay. One, I do. A one, two, three, four. Country roads take me home to the place I belong. Hindu heritage, summer camp. Take me home within this song. Oh my God! <laughs> Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, follow us on Instagram, the underscore Bali underscore effect. And we'll see you there. Thank you. Bye. Check us out.